Good afternoon. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Nia. Uh, this is the Ethics in Action podcast from uh, the UMass Boston Ethics Center. And uh, my guest today is Jennifer Radden. Jennifer is a professor emerita of philosophy at UMass Boston and a seminal contributor to the philosophy of uh, psychiatry and philosophy of uh, mental health and many important books and articles and collections. And Jennifer recently completed uh, an entry on um, the philosophy of mental disorder, mental health in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. The Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy is the most important reference uh, source in philosophy and that um, is the occasion of uh, our conversation today. So Jennifer, congratulations on a wonderful entry, first of all. I've read it and reread it and I was very impressed. So that's a really great contribution. Thank you very much. Um, it, was so, a, it was quite a joint effort. I'll explain in a minute, but... Okay, joint, joint, okay. With, joint with who? Well, what Stanford does, I mean, stop me if you don't want to talk about this Sure. right now but it, what Stanford does is sort of select someone or I don't know they must have a committee that decides ask them to do an entry um, and then really treat what you first send them as a journal would so a great number actually I think in the end it was about five different sets of anonymous um, comments line by line, you know, very close comments and suggestions came my way in the period of a couple of years that it took to actually write it. Oh, wow. um, and, and some of them were extraordinarily helpful structurally because as you, having read it, will know mental disorder is a big topic and I was expected to really take on uh, a lot of what I suppose we philosophers would say was the metaphysics, the epistemology, but also the ethics, the bioethics, and so on. So I, it, it was supposed to be having a very broad sweep. And um, it was as the result of sort of very helpful restructuring um, suggestions mm -hmm. from these uh, anonymous uh, reviewers that, I, that it ended up in that shape. Hmm. It had several other shapes along the hmm. way. Yeah. So why why write why write an entry on mental disorders on philosophy of mental disorders? What's well, yeah. Uh, if you have spent your research career sort of fostering and encouraging and developing and cherishing this new field in of sort of applied philosophy, which I regard myself as having done, um, then you're Delighted to think that it, it, there was time that we had had, or the Stanford Encyclopedia had had an earlier one written actually by a friend and colleague, um, of, which they called mental illness. And I sort of struck out and insisted on mental disorder as a changed title because I did think the term had sort of the terminology had shifted a bit in various settings, medical and philosophical. And um, it was time for a new one. So the old one was kind of not exactly keeping up with everything that was going on. So it was good to do a new one and start over, which is what I did. Mm -hmm. um, mm. Yeah. And it's a field that really has 
in in the stretch of time of my I would say my research career uh, it, it, it's just kind of blossomed and opened out in all oh. sorts of directions even in the last decade I mean it's yeah. opened out again sort of with neuroethics and right. cognitive psychology and so on so it's right. growing mm. in your ex from your research perspective, what what does a philosopher bring to understanding and thinking about mental disorder? Well, in some ways, keeping keeping the docs honest, um, I I think there's a sort of neutrality that philosophers are trained with in terms of approach, mm -hmm. which uh, allows. And a, bit, and a certain distance uh, from the presuppositions of a medical model, particularly mm -hmm. as the people who write about psychiatry from within medicine are all trained through medical schools. And it's a way mm -hmm. of thinking, and it's a sort of adaptation of the medical model mm -hmm. to psychiatric symptoms, which I just think the philosophers we we as a group of philosophers who write about have about mental disorder have had a, a degree of detachment from mm -hmm. that model not mm -hmm. necessarily disagreed with it but been less inclined to assume it mm -hmm. so i think that's one good thing i mean i think philosophers as philosophers we're trained uh substantively to be able to make distinctions and write uh, persuasively about value issues and at least my view of psychiatry is that it is a value filled um, set of ideas you can't really get away from them mm -hmm. um, both the specific ethical do's and don'ts and quandaries but more generally there are all these values around mental health goals that uh, seem to me pretty inescapable yeah. and so that's something we can do. I think the philosophy of mind provides, and I suppose that really epistemology and metaphysics, all that part of what philosophers do, provides the one, I don't mean to say the only, but one good um, perspective from which to think about the complexities involved in mind-brain issues. Um, you know, behavior, action, all, all the sort of usual um, ideas that come up in psychiatry. Yeah. One of the, as I'm sure you know, one of the areas where the kind of tension between the medical model and uh, maybe a more uh, traditional philosophical uh, model comes up is areas around addiction. Um, and when you listen to some of the practitioners, part of the push to define addiction, for example, in, med in medical terms as a disease uh, is often around the kind of resources that then get attached to those doing the treatments uh, and uh, sometimes even the specific concrete buildings and facilities where people uh, um, are treated. Um, so I'm wondering if you have some thoughts around 
I mean, there's philosophical reasons, right, to uh, think through the limitations of a medical model, but then it's almost like there's also political reasons to move disorders into the medical model. Well, that's interesting. Yes, I I I do see, but I I guess I suppose uh, as philosophers we we can't afford to be too right uh, persuaded by prudential right. considerations like that. That's a good point. Um, but yeah. it's an issue. Yes, yeah. it's a it's a real issue. I mean, the whole I don't know whether you want to get into this later, but the whole issue of po how politics intersects gen more generally with psychiatry yeah. uh, and with psychiatric practice and mental health and these sort of ideas yeah. is an ongoing and fascinating chunk of our our sort of culture and society that I watch with great interest because it really has changed right. since I first was writing about this stuff in the 70s. Are there, are there particular sort of contexts or examples where you're noticing this with more alarm or interest? More interest and alarm, I would say. I yeah. mean, I am following, uh, you know, the, the, neurodiversity the applications of the idea of neurodiversity mm -hmm. with interest and almost excitement yeah. um, because yeah. i mean it's that's partly because i sort of I can of course see their application in the case of disorders like um the the uh the spectrum um asperger's yeah sort of conditions right. and I can't as readily see the neurodiversity model applying to conditions like schizophrenia yeah and so what it's done for me as I've watched this progression in some ways is make me see fewer and fewer commonalities uh, between the different disorder categories hmm. So maybe, in fact, hmm. you know, there are there are misleading common there. There's a sort of misleading conception about mental disorder where it is one kind of thing, or or a useful category as a very overarching category. Mm -hmm. hmm. That's sort of one of the leads that I pulled out of this. But then I encounter another, you know, an, an, another disorder which is being in some ways treated this way as a, a simply a case of neurodiversity. And then mm -hmm. I think, well, maybe that goes on that side. Mm -hmm. So it's a sort of ongoing process as mm -hmm. these ideas are um, seeping down, seeping across. Mm -hmm. What, uh, say a little more about that one? Well, for instance, uh, at the annual meeting of the American Psychiatric Association, which was a few weeks ago in, uh, I, think the, I think it was in San Jose. I was not able to go, and I sometimes do, but there was a splinter group, I suppose it is, of some sort called Radical Psychiatry, which was uh, from within psychiatry, um, having speakers, including Ginger Hoffman, who is a, a philosopher, 
who writes mm -hmm. about neurodiversity, mm -hmm. speak about the applications of the a sort of neurodiversity model to shrinks. I mean, that's that's who the audience is at the American Psychiatric Association. Mm -hmm. so that's one of the things I was thinking of when I said that. Mm -hmm. And when so the this to some extent goes to your discussion of um, uh, uh, criteria for understanding both the uh, mental and the disorder part of the mental disorder term. But so is 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 it the case that some of what allows us to uh, uh, put things on the uh, neurodiversity uh, spectrum with some disorders and not with others has to do, for example, with functionality? Uh, in other words, how functional the patient remains influences in everyday life or what have you influences whether we can uh, think about uh, or categorize a disorder on a spectrum of neurodiversity, whereas if uh, the disturbance or the disorder is very, very severe, it has to leave the spectrum of neurodiversity. Is there something like that going on? So for example, when you say you can't see schizophrenia as part of a neurodiversity spectrum, is that because after a certain level of that sets in, the person can't quite function, whereas not so much the case, for example, uh, on some of the um, Asperger's spectrum? Yes, I think that it does fit in with the sort of functional, the criteria in, around function, but you're also keeping in mind that the, I mean, you can, if you can envision Think, think of an accommodation with a disability. I mean, this goes over also into the whole question of the analogies with the disabilities movement, right? Think of right. ramps. Think of ramps for wheelchairs. All you have to do to make the wheelchair riding population mm -hmm. get there without steps is build ramps. And, and similarly with, I, I would say, lots of um, Asperger's, um spectrum stuff you don't you can at least imagine a setting or arranging a setting where you can achieve the same functionality right. as you do with the wheelchairs and the question uh, it seems to me one aspect of this is what could the setting be when you are talking about someone with really fairly severe schizophrenic symptoms right uh, too too confusing too too distressing um, i mean there's a whole lot of aspects to what would make it very very difficult mm -hmm. um, hmm. so i was thinking more along those lines and it has got to do with function but it's mm -hmm. got to do with a kind of Im Im almost like an imaginative um it's like a, a thought experiment mm -hmm. about where could that work? Mm -hmm. Where could that be made? Or where or how could that be made to work? So just because I'm not terribly familiar with this, so there is an argument. Is that, I, I mean, it's a question that I'm asking, actually. Is there an argument inside philosophy about expanding the scope of neurodiversity between 
between thinkers, namely that it should apply to more cases or should apply to less cases? Well, I think that um, not only the neurodiversity sort of push, but also the mad, before that there was the mad pride uh, movement. Mm -hmm. I think the presumption has always been to sort of push a bit further, push a bit further. So it's most most persuasive and compelling with a certain group of cases. Yeah. And yes, you you think well, all these are have something in common. So let's try and see if we can make the same yeah. application. Yeah, that's really interesting because as you were suggesting earlier, and I think in parts of the essay, even if not directly, there are philosophical assumptions underlying all of this. I think part of what makes possible a sort of broad reading of neurodiversity is a cultural tendency, for example, in this country, in the United States, for people to stay functional as long as possible, to be integrated into work, school environments for as long as possible, to sort of keep them going, keep them working, whereas some other places where I've, you know, uh, lived, it's quite different than that. There's sort of more of a, less of a stigma, if you want, or more of a set of conditions to drop out for a while, drop back in, um, and so to some extent that's, it seems like it's got to be tied into how broadly one reads the neurodiversity spectrum. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, except when you got that last conclusion, I wasn't sure about that, but the, but the fact that there are cultural differences over the question of, over how much stress is laid on functionality, that yeah. part I absolutely agree with you about. Yeah. And I think it's very, you might say, very North American yeah. to have yeah. chosen functionality. And there's lots to be said in its favour, even yeah. if we think it's limiting to place such stress on functionality. It's partly that um, at least you're sort of kept safe from making uh, unwarrantedly uh, confident, overconfident assertions about causal connections, like yeah. it's all genetic or it's all in the brain chemistry or something. You don't yeah. when when really what the bottom line is is how is social function affected, right? Um, and what can we do about it? Then you avoid. It seems to me a lot of yeah. A lot of essentialism. Yes, a lot yeah. of essentialism, a lot of dangerous hypotheses. Yeah. Yeah. Jennifer, what what are some contexts, what are some manifestations of the medicalized model that bother you particularly? Oh, where to begin? Um, well, There is a whole context that I've been interested in for years and years, which is the context where responsibility connects with disorder or disease or disorder concepts. Mm -hmm. So um, you don't have, you, you have, for instance, in the insanity defense, you have some um, legislative sort of principles that say if the person has a mental disease and the mental disease was functioning at the time of the uh, crime, then that means they are not 
guilty of the crime, right? That's right. Uh, not guilty by reason of insanity. The sort of reasoning about uh, responsibility and disease lying in there seems to me to be dangerous from a law point of view. I mm -hmm. mean, the jurisprudence is a bit nutty, right. and so is the philosophy. It's so, so that's one context. But, they, you know, it plays through or that, that sort of reasoning plays out in, in lots of settings which aren't criminal justice. They're just yeah. everyday, how do we proceed? What degree of sort of blame do we impose? Mm -hmm. What expectation is there for voluntary action and so on? And I'm at the, presently my work is on anorexia. Mm -hmm. And I'm interested in those that set of ideas in relation to anorexia, where you have a multitude of sort of explanatory hypotheses, all the way from genes to uh, a lot of reference. No, no single anorexia gene anyone is going to find, but it's going to be polygenetic mm -hmm. um, to uh, very, very interesting sort of. Um, cognitive psychology hypotheses and even a bit of testing to prove them um, around the idea of some sort of misapprehensions of size and shape going on in the mind of the person mm -hmm. to all the range of sort of social and political issues around uh, as it were, opp oppressive patriarchal att attitudes and sexist attitudes about mm -hmm. women's bodies and mm -hmm. size and shape and so on, all feeding into what still looks as though it's a fairly voluntary action, which is mm -hmm. the anorexic withholding of food or not, not eating, basically. Mm -hmm. So um, that's an example. Yeah, yeah, that is absolutely an example. When you when you talk to shrinks about your work, psychiatrists, psychologists, how how receptive do you usually find them, or maybe more broadly, uh, how much contact between philosophers and mental health professionals are you seeing? Well, I, I can give you a bit, of, probably a, the simplest way is to do a bit of history at this point. So I was interested in mental disorder from the get-go for various reasons. I had done um, psychology as well as philosophy. So I was a sort of, uh, had a shared interest. And I was really the only person I knew, almost the only person I knew in, in philosophy. I knew some psychiatrists who were polite about it, but not interested. Um, then it turned out around the end of the 70s, there were, uh, and during the 80s, there were a bunch of people who, in both, both in Britain and in this country, who were clinicians, shrinks, but they were interested in philosophy and for in some cases had had studied it mm -hmm. just you know really well well informed about philosophical issues and found them interesting and an increasing number of philosophers who also sort of got interested and so but i would say by 1990 there was quite a group both in in britain there were some in germany so 
all across Western Europe, and and this is only what I know about, not what was necessarily there. Yeah. Um, so we were beginning to have conferences. We formulated a sort of got Johns Hopkins to support this big and very important journal, philosophy, psychiatry, and psychology (PPP), um, and you know got an a sort of active membership. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just, it's just grown since then. So is your average psychiatrist at all interested in yeah. the philosophical underpinnings? No, yeah. but uh, you know, this is, it's a big enough population that there are still a great many who are, and um, almost tugging the philosophers over to show an interest was as hard as, you know, finding a like-minded group in, yeah. in psychology. Yeah. And, you know, psychologists too are there and interested in more open-minded because they actually haven't had the sort of yeah. medical school brainwashing kind of effect. Yeah. Um, and I think make it hard. Huh. It's, in it's interesting, almost as a methodological question about applied philosophy more generally, there's, you know, as, as you know, there, there's more than one way of doing it, right? There's a sort of, and in some ways it kind of um, is interesting to uh, think about um, what is the data set that one works with. So if you think about, for example, uh, the philosophy of war, you know, one kind of idea is to think broadly about normative ideal categories, you know, uh, about what counts as a just decision and just conduct and so on and so forth. And then another approach is to um, actually, uh, which is rarely done, query the practitioners of war, um, the commanders, uh, soldiers, and look at their experience of war and then another one is to uh look at the actual experience of the people who are impacted by it and the same could be said about applied philosophical discussions about technology which not very often take into consideration the uh, uh, views and the knowledge of actual uh, engineers and technologists and almost never take into consideration uh, the lived experience of people impacted uh, uh, by technology. And so there's a sort in of... This in this country, because right. they do, Scandinavian countries, they do right. bring in, this in the people affected. Yeah. Right, right. With right. things. Um, yeah. And so I was wondering if there's a version of that in the philosophy of mental disorder and where, where, where you stood on the sort of ideal, non-ideal spectrum yes i i think i think i understand the last bit of that i certainly there's been an increase in interest in first person accounts i mean there's something there's something very the affinity for um mental health issues and phenomenology is sort of yeah. obvious because we have to remember that all we have is symptoms we right. do not understand the science of mental disorder. And uh, it's just not available yet. 
Yeah. So all you have is symptoms and first person accounts of symptoms have to be the starting point. Right. Interestingly, I think is why as a field, there's always been a, a respect for and acknowledgement of phenomenological traditions, hmm. even from people in North America like me, who are mostly trained in a British analytic type right. stuff. Right. Right. Um, so that has certainly um, gone on, expanded to recognize the importance of first person accounts, which include memoirs and blogs and yeah. you know, all the now with social media, all the ways in which people who are directly affected by yeah. mental disorder are, yeah. are able to express themselves. And I think there's a great deal of interest in their perspective. Yeah, that's interesting because I think in other areas, for example, like in the study of the ethics of war, in some way it's easier to segregate first-person accounts and memoirs from sort of normative theorizing, probably because of an understanding or a thought or a hope that you could make war, you could make sense of war as a social phenomenon uh, almost abstractly. I mean that seems a little crazy to me, but um, yeah, that's a that, that's a really interesting point that that is not really available for uh, mental disorder. Um, right, because we because there's lots we sort of understand about war. We don't, in a way, need yeah. to. Or it would be good if we did but we yeah. don't need to go to hmm. how did how did this affect ordinary people hmm. yeah um, because we, we know the causes we know the preventive measures hmm. you know we're we're much better equipped in a sense to hmm. i suppose um study yeah. war on its own yeah yeah or at that level of uh, uh, that sort of general level yeah um, so, uh, let me ask you about, um, when, uh, in the, uh, entry, uh, you, you make this nice distinction between that if you look at the term, uh, uh mental disorder, uh, you can look at the mental part of that phrase and that the disorder part of that phrase and investigate them separately. And uh, when you start talking about what counts as disorder, you put it against the background of the uh, interest in the kind of idea of a unified, orderly, coherent uh, soul or uh, psyche in the history, at least, um, of the uh, Western tradition, right? And so Plato has his ordered uh, 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 hierarchical soul and, Aristotle has this uh, coherent uh, idea uh, of character. And um, so one thing I'm curious about there is that, so we have this surviving to our times in various versions of virtue ethics, this idea of a recognizable character built through practice, recognizable by, uh, uh, through repeated manifestations by people. But then as you know, there's a bunch of, um, uh, um, interesting uh, research, including from uh, John Doris, who you mentioned to me uh, earlier about this idea that character is uh, much less stable uh, uh, than we'd like it to be, and that uh, uh, people given or put under the right circumstance are capable of remarkable things and of awful things, the same exact people. And 
you know, our idea of a comforting, stable, fixed character often suffers shipwreck. So um, how does that fit in with the picture of um, order as a kind of criterion for well-being? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Well, you, I mean, I think people sometimes make them sort of forget that when you find um, aspirations around order and coherence of the soul or the psyche uh, in Aristotle, for instance, these are ideals. I mean, Aristotle wasn't stupid enough to think that we didn't fall short and didn't have these sort of fractures in our lives and, you know, or, or many aspects of our psyches are just we're striving towards that mm -hmm. and so when you when it comes up in mental health which it does as you say as a as a goal to be sought um it's it's a goal it's a, an mm -hmm. aspiration now why should we can we aspire to it as i suppose one question and I, I see no reason why not, although certainly lots of people think that the behavioral economics stuff from Fersky and Kahneman kind of make you think, well, you can try as hard as you like, but you've still got these unconscious biases and nothing's going to really, you're not going to get sort of cognitive um, fairness in a way. But mm -hmm. I, I think that's an overstated interpretation of of their findings. Mm -hmm. I think people can and do transcend, in a sense, their unconscious biases if they want to. They can work towards. Um, so, you if you if you as long as you keep in mind that it's a goal, then it is possible to work towards it. It's not a, a completely futile effort. Mm -hmm then you obviously you're if you're doing therapy you at what you're if what you're seeking in therapy might be a more unified more coherent self um so that that part's okay but the but the more overarching part that interests me about this and i my work in the 90s was really about some of this stuff is the extent to which the unitary self through time mm -hmm. is necessary as a posit, even if it's a metaphysical posit, mm -hmm. it's necessary for a whole lot of responsibility concepts that we could let go of, right. but I, I don't want to. Right. I mean, and plus our, many of our big system, you know, institutions and systems like the legal system are sort of premised on it. So right. you'd lose you'd lose a great deal. Yeah. Um, so I I see it in in that sense as sort of dependent as necessary for something I do value rather than as necessary in it in itself. I guess the unity. Yeah. How do? But I. Do, yeah. Go on. How do you how do you solve that kind of human problem in your own mind of like. This is a concept that doesn't fare very well under scrutiny, the unified self under time, and yet is completely necessary for keeping us mentally ordered. 
Yes. Well, you just got to. I mean, but, he, uh, but, he went and played billiards after thinking too much was his solution, right? But he, but he was talking in that discussion, wasn't Hume talking about unity at a time? He isn't, wasn't he talking about the heart, what they now call the hard problem there? Really? That is, why is it all part of one rather than, well, I, I suppose he did mean, yes, he thought there was a sequence of mm -hmm. ideas going through and it was moving, but he wasn't yeah. exactly talking about tying up the you that committed the crime yesterday with the you that is standing in the dock today. And right. that he, yeah. Yeah. So if I understood you earlier correctly, this kind of ideal, you feel fine with this kind of looking at the unified, coherent, sort of classical self as a regulative ideal that makes sense as a therapeutic goal, that makes sense still as a sort of uh, yardstick for the lack of mental disorder or for the retreat of mental disorder. Um, does that make sense? Yes, sort of. I mean, I would sort of accept that formulation. But let me say this. I think you, when you begin to think about psychopathology, I mean, really mad symptoms yeah. in various directions, it makes an Aristotelian of you in the following sense. Yeah. You can have disorder, severe mm -hmm. disorder, which is in a person who's too orderly right mm -hmm. so there you have your sort of obsessive compulsive right or you can have mental disorder a category of some sort of diagnosis yeah. in the very scattered unhappy borderline personality or the dissociative identity disorder where right. this there's not enough coherence so it makes it aristotelians of us in the sense that you have to then imagine there's this normal band within mm -hmm. and it might be quite a wide we hope it's quite a wide band yeah. within which it's okay mental health is there whether you're tending yeah. a little towards the or more towards the orderly or a little less yeah yeah i mean it's it's actually a pretty interesting example of where you can completely not separate the philosophical construct from the uh, everyday practice of psychiatry or psychotherapy because the DSM, for example, has to make a set of assumptions about, as you say, what counts as disorder. Disunified thought is often one of those. Disunified, uh, disorganized thought is often one of those criteria. But the positing of unified, organized, coherent thought as a philosoph you know, as the standard of normality, as a philosophical construct with a philosophical history. Um, and yes. I mean, it, it's an interesting role for, I think, a philosopher to even point that out to, uh, to a practitioner. Um, what do yes. And even if we even if we move back a little and get to Plato, where you know all these sort of the Dionysian and the 
Apollonian mm-hmm. and so on. The, 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 the pull between these, you might say, between sanity and madness is uh, very present in, philo- in the philosophical traditions. I mean, right. there was nothing that hadn't been noticed, in a sense, about how you have to find this norm, this health norm somewhere in between the two, or you mm. have to acknowledge the the different pulls. It's easiest in it's easier in Aristotle because he sort of lays it all out yeah. um, very neatly. But right. I think you can also track it back to Plato in right. a woollier way. Right, uh, Jennifer. Let me ask you um, uh, something that I've always been uh, curious about in the context of my own work uh, on how countries uh, come to terms uh, with their own past and what some of the moral and political and legal questions are um, when uh, they move beyond war or civil conflict. Uh, So in the psychotherapeutic, well, I should say more precisely, in the psychodynamic and psychoanalytic uh, tradition, there is very broadly speaking, a little bit cliche speaking, uh, this assumption that one has to come to terms with their past, unearth their past, come into contact uh, with uh, submerged parts of their past in order to understand the structure of their uh, uh, neurotic, neurotic behavior and uh, maybe to some extent uh, uh, either overcome it or tolerate it or what have you. Um, you see that actually quite often uh, being uh, imported wholesale uh, that assumption uh, into politics, into political context, that countries then have to uh, completely come to terms with their past, that uh, policies of amnesia are, uh, or collective amnesia or policies of just not talking about the past for a while are in some ways uh, pathological in the same way that denial and in the uh, uh, interpersonal context uh, or suppression uh, are pathological for um, individuals um do you have uh i know this is a bit out of left field but i wonder if you have any um do you have any uh, thoughts about migrating some of these assumptions from the personal to the political i wouldn't be averse to it in principle um but uh, yeah it isn't it isn't clear to me that even if we stay on the personal level, the costs of denial are always so bad. Mm-hmm. So we have, we have this sort of presupposition, and I suppose it comes from the, the return of the repressed in Freud and all the sort of psychodynamic ideas about the way the past will come back and mess us up yeah. in the present. Um, but I don't think though, I mean, I think those ideas are very attractive. I, I think they don't perhaps ordinary empirical proof. No. I don't think, I mean, I, you know, and I think, you know, we see denial, we see it indeed in the highest office of the land and it yeah. works well. You know, I mean, there's a very, I mean, that very functionality that's very American that right. we were talking about before. 
yeah. some ways doesn't want to look back and won't suffer from not looking back. Right. Um, so with that proviso, which right. is quite a big one, right. I think really so repressed yeah. uh, so this much but um so other countries which I suppose that's what I'd ask. Are there nations which have buried their past successfully and gone on to, um, I suppose, the, the, the current thinking in China is not a good example. They tried to bury yeah. Tiananmen. Yeah. And look what's happening. Right, right. No, I mean, I think most of the time it doesn't work. I think there's a danger always in politics about being dogmatic and moving beyond anything that is simply most of the time. Uh, there's certainly cases where countries have found it necessary to temporarily suspend discussing the past because it was seen to be too explosive. Spanish example is a good uh, case of that. So this idea uh, after Franco's uh, uh, um, uh, stepping down from the scene death uh, of uh, the uh, so-called pact of forgetting that they thought it would be too explosive to talk about uh, 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 <clears throat> the civil war and the history of abuses uh, by the fascists immediately after the uh, instituting of democracy. And then, of course, the powers that be thought, oh, that's nice. Let's never talk about this. And, you know, then after a while, that didn't work anymore. Um, but, yeah, I think that's, that's the key question. Um, Jennifer, maybe let me uh, uh, conclude by asking you, um, uh, since I don't want to uh, hold you for too long, but let me ask you, what are some of the most uh, interesting and exciting uh, directions that you see in this uh, uh, research for the future? Ah, well, um, I think that some people, I think that one of the concepts that, Psychiatry has sort of left off and and can't afford to is the the philosophical concept of the self and mm -hmm. I think some people around and about are doing very very interesting work on um, how the self understood as a almost a scientific concept mm -hmm. but it's like self one self conception of oneself mm -hmm. the self in that sense. Um, it, has got to be better understood and better fitted into accounts of symptomatology and symptoms. Mm -hmm. So that's one area that I know people are working on. Um, the, uh, there's a, a, a terrific, as you know, sort of a terrific push of philosophers over towards cognitive psychology, where I think, uh, they're looking at all kinds of interesting things, um, depending on what the the pathology in question that sets them off. But obviously, the stuff about delusions um, has invited a, a, 
great great deal of new and interesting work in the last few decades. Hmm. Uh, and much of it really, you would say, in cognitive psychology rather than technically in philosophy, but it's the same people who are doing that work. Hmm. Um, the, the philosophies, interestingly, the philosophy of science folk at first really didn't do the philosophy of psychiatry. They hmm. stayed with their biology and such things. But just in this last few years, we're seeing a lot of young philosophers of psychiatry who are trained in, in uh, the philosophy of science end of things, get showing an interest and in doing some terrific work, I think, on the methodology, on the methodological questions mm. all around, mm. you know, the, the disorder categories huh. and so on. So that's huh. a few. Yeah, well, it's, it's such a cool and fascinating field. So let me end by saying congrats again on the Stanford Encyclopedia entry and on all the amazing work that you've done over the years. And um, thank you. Thank you. Okay. <laughs>